back to the Cyclotips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we've got almost everybody, pretty much everybody, here today. Hello, Abby. Hi. Hello, James. Hello. Hello, Ronan. Hi. How you doing, Dane? Uh, you caught me off guard there. Yes. You, you just said hello to everybody, and then you asked me how I'm doing, and I'm not ready. I don't know. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I'm doing okay, Kaylee. Thanks for asking. Shadi. Hello. Ça va? Ça va bien. Well, let's get right into it today. We've got a lot to discuss. We've got two overlapping world tour stage races used in preparation for the Tour de France. You guys know how much I love that fact. We're going to talk a little bit about both the end of the Dauphiné and the Tour de Suisse. And we're going to talk about Rigoberto Uran as related to a little classic out of nowhere time trial. Talk about Pogacar who is, well, obviously, the number one favorite for the Tour de France and where he stands right now. We're going to mention Tulsa Tough, which happened over the weekend, the big crit races in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because we had a crew on the ground in Tulsa. We're going to have a small debate about whether Mark Cavendish should go to the Tour de France. If you were Patrick Lefebvre, would you bring Mark Cavendish to the Tour de France? That's the question we're going to try to answer here. And then in this week's Nerd Nugget, we have some illegal handlebars. Well, actually, I think the handlebars are okay. It's how you ride on them, kind of. Anyway, we'll get into that. The tech guys know what they're talking about. I'm just making stuff up. And a brief PSA, public service announcement, on tubeless valves, because James doesn't want your wheels to explode. He's a really nice guy like that. Let's... Get into it. But before we do, Shoddy Dave, what are we learning about Continental this week? Right. As always, get yourself sitting comfortably. We're going to learn some bits and bobs about Continental again. So are you familiar with the conundrum? There's fast, cheap and good. Pick two. Well, when it comes to tyres, there are generally three factors to look at. Speed, grip and mileage. If you want speed, you sacrifice mileage. If you want grip, you sacrifice speed and so on. Continental's renowned black chili compound has been created to be adjustable. As they say at Conti, it's all about how you mix it. So depending on the application of a tyre, Continental adjusts the compound formulation for a specific discipline. Whether that's for road or mountain biking, time trialing, gravel, downhill racing, whatever you ride. There's a Continental tyre with just the right balance, a black chilli compound for pretty much every type of riding. So when you're choosing your next set of bicycle tyres, make sure they're Continental with black chilli compound. Now, I never knew that that black chilli compound could be mixed up into different, well formulas i've learned something today myself <laughs> i always just thought it was one straight thing i feel like it's all about how you mix it could be the tagline for this podcast actually <laughs> what are you gonna get it all depends how you mix it is that all we got shoddy that's all i got that's all i got today i was thinking that how you mix it was more to do with dj something like that but hey <laughs> You could be disco dancing on continental tires instead. <laughs> mm, perhaps, perhaps. Well, thanks as always to Continental for sponsoring this week's 
episode. It's time for some bike racing. So, Dane, Tour de Suisse is the one that we're focusing on here. How did that wrap up? What can we take away from it? The, the, the field was not stellar, shall we say. But nonetheless, we could, we could sort of, you know, take some individual performances and learn something from them ahead of the Tour de France, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that neither the Dauphiné nor the Suisse had the highest caliber fields this year because, of course, the two favorites for the Tour de France decided to skip them. Uh, but after the Dauphiné, we got what I think was the best possible outcome at the Suisse uh, because, uh, of course, Vienios Grenadiers won the Dauphiné uh, with Richie Porte. Garen Thomas of the Vienios Grenadiers was third at the Dauphiné and Theo Gegenhardt was 10th. So coming out of the Dauphiné, we had already three Ineos riders in the top 10 of a big pre-tour tune-up. What I really wanted to see was Richard Carapaz joining the mix to add more drama. And and he did. He won the, the, the Tour de Suisse. And so now Ineos, uh, they have uh, four riders having just finished inside the top 10 of a major pre-tour tune-up race. Uh, Eddie Dunbar finished 12th. So I don't know. Maybe they can throw an Eddie Dunbar into the uh, Tour de France mix here. Just kidding. Uh, but yeah, Richard Carapaz, I think he's already certainly going to be uh, a, a sort of co-leader for the tour, uh, possible option, you know, one B. Uh, but I think now any of us have to really consider a, a multi-pronged approach, trident, tridente, if you will. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But Rich Carbos looked great at the Tour de Suisse. He was, he climbed very well. He he rode the time trial well. Uh, he yeah he he managed. I think very well as the obvious favorite for the race going in. He was the he was the favorite. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do, to, to have all eyes on you. Uh, and he still won the race despite that. Uh, well, it wasn't a dominant win. He, he was only the victor by 17 seconds over Rigo Iran. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, yeah, really nice ride from Carpas, especially after not really having done much this year. So I think he is firmly in the discussion as a leader at the uh, Tour for Ineos. What a ridiculous bicycle team they are. <laughs> like, what? 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 How, like, how do you go into a Tour de France with four leaders? I don't understand. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. They're still not going to win, by the way. But they're going to they're going to go in with four leaders at least. I don't know. I feel like with four leaders, they might have a pretty good shot at winning. That definitely increases their odds, right? If you think like mathematically, they're not movie star, are they? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they've won two tours now with. Uh, sort of the, their backup option for that for that year's race, and and I don't think Gary Thomas or Egan Bernal were secretly their obvious top option. I think they really were going in with two leaders both times they won with those guys, and it worked out quite well. Ted Gegenhart was definitely not their top option at last year's Giro, and he did pretty well there. Uh, I think they've done a, a pretty good job of having multiple leaders, and I think that the main key to success with having multiple leaders is actually having really really good riders. And that's the problem that Movistar had for many years, is that they went in with multiple leaders when they were never really at the very top tier. Uh, Quintana, I think, early on was was pretty high up there, but he, when that was the case, he was pretty clearly the leader of the team. And in the later years, the Trident years, nobody was expecting Quintana or Landa to win the Tour, let alone Valverde. But Garen Thomas, yeah, he's got a real chance of winning. It's He's definitely not the top favorite, but I think if they go in with an aggressive um, mindset... And they decide, okay, we're all going to try to go on the attack and see what sticks. I think it's the best and probably the only chance they have of, of taking on Pogacar and Roglic. If, if there was just one of those two, Pogacar or Roglic, I would say 
they have a pretty good shot of like you know something happening a crosswind uh, a, a a a poorly timed flat tire a bad day but to beat both of them i just i just don't see it you know next week will be our tour de france sort of big preview we only have one more normal episode before the tour starts by the way <laughs> right <clears throat> next monday is the last one and, and then, then we have tour dailies and then we have dailies so all of us here have to wake up every morning and make a podcast. I strategically forgot about that. <laughs> I selectively no, James, didn't remember that. They're all tech you pods, actually. We don't have just James <laughs> by himself <laughs> talking to tech. So next week is our last uh, our last pre-tour episode. And we are going to we're going to make some predictions uh, next week. We're going to we're going to every single person on this podcast is going to have to make some some very specific predictions about the tour and at the end of the tour we're gonna see who was the worst at this which, which is gonna really it's gonna be a tough battle for who's the worst I'm at this all in for rigoberto iran you're an iran fan we're gonna talk about our iran fandom uh in in a little bit here i think but yeah the tour is coming people the, the the olympics moved it all closer it starts on the 26th it's really it's just around the corner now so anyway we went off off camber off piste a little bit. Uh, Dane, returning to the Tour de Suisse, let's 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 talk about Iran and our Iran fandom. How, how, how do we feel after the end of the after the end of the race? It's pretty much same as always. Uh, uncertain as to what the heck to expect about Rigoberto Iran, who deep uncertainty, who sometimes is incredible and sometimes just disappears entirely. This was more this was more on the incredible side of the uh, spectrum. Had a fantastic Tour de Suisse. Uh, punctuated by a fantastic time trial. Uh, the race started off with a short, flat time trial. Uh, and then on stage seven, there was a mountain time trial. But not it wasn't a hill climb. I mean, there was it went up a hill, but then it also went down a hill. So there was some descending involved. It wasn't purely a climber's day. And nonetheless, Rigoberto Uran had a fantastic ride. We've seen him have fantastic time trials before. Sometimes... It's really hard. I mean, sometimes he has really bad time trials. It's really hard to know exactly when we're going to see Uran at his best. Uh, but Uran fans, I think they really had occasion to rejoice. Uh, I I had a Uran fan text me uh, right after his big <laughs> performance. Um, it wasn't me. It, it wasn't, wasn't me. No, it was she. She was on this call. Uh, so yeah, it was a big big week for Ron Fonz, and there's only one person that can yeah, that, be. That that be. That's true. Uh, I, I don't know what to expect from him, but I think if you're EF, you have to be pretty happy because going into this week, that they didn't really have a whole lot of hope of, I think, having a, a huge Tour de France, and now all of a sudden they can dream again. Uh, Ron had a big week, and and he's peaking at the right time, obviously. Br- a brief moment, uh to talk about Iran's equipment selection in that, in that Swiss time trial. So, so a lot of riders actually jumped on road bikes for that day and he stayed on his TT bike, which I always think is a really good sign when it, when a, when a GC contender is comfortable enough on their time trial bike to stay on it on a sort of mountainous DT, right. Rather than do the bike switch. I always think that's a very good sign. It means he's been doing his, Doing his TT training, which, you know, we know Iran's a, a, has always been a good time trial. I mean, how many Colombian TT titles does the guy have? But still, it's good to see. You you don't see that from a lot of GC guys who just don't pay enough attention to time trialing, basically. 
so as an Iran fan, me and Abby, uh, I, I like seeing that because I feel like he's he's well prepared for the time trials of the Tour de France now. I think something that was really crazy about that time trial was the speeds they were hitting on the descents. At one point, the camera showed the motorbike, how fast the motorbike was going behind somebody, and it was like over 100 kilometers an hour on that descent, which is just like insane. If you think about someone going down a mountainous descent, maybe it wasn't super technical, but on a TT bike, going over 100 kilometers an hour, crazy. Somewhere on Twitter, I wish I could tell you who it was, was asking people about the fastest speeds they've ever been on a bike. And one of the comments was, they'd ask, I can't remember what rider it was, and said, oh, I got 115 kilometres an hour at the Tour of Swiss. And they went, what year was that then? And they said, oh, every year. Every year you ride it, you hit 115 kilometres an hour, no matter. So maybe that's a video we've got to line up. I'll pop across the border and go and see what roads I can... Knock 115k out at. I hit about 100k an hour way back in the day, drafting behind a construction truck. That was not very smart. All things considered, like you know, kind of looking back now. <laughs> Does Canada have a new time trial bike? Yeah, that's. What I was just going to say there is that Iran was on that new time trial bike that we had uh, a piece on. Uh, well, it must be about two months ago now. I think it was spotted at the Tour de Romandy. Um, but yeah, that was. We had had, or I, I say we, but I probably should say I had. Because you can take credit for that, that, Ronan. I saw you wrote that. That was you. That your name's on it. You know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I did speculate that that new time trial bike was very much like the current um, System Six from from Cannondale, uh, and is also uh, we speculate disc brake only. Uh, so you know, perhaps it handles a little bit more like a road bike than a normal time trial bike, and it had. Uh, you know, time trial bikes are notorious for having terrible run brakes um, just because of the way they're internally rooted in that. So if I was to descend on any time trial bike at such high speeds on a descent that wasn't technical but did have a couple of hairpins in that on it, I would much prefer to be on a, a, a dusk brake time trial bike. And that's Absolutely. the only thing that anybody's ever going to remember from this podcast is the fact that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, we can, go, the, we can go ahead and say it right now. Ronan McLaughlin hates run brakes. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Wants them banned. Ronan and the Movistar team. Random note here. Watch the Movistar doc if you want to see uh, Movistar riders complaining about their disc brakes. Mm. Just the kit in general by the looks of when you watch it. It's amazing that how, how much they knock it in that video. You're like, well, well done, lads. These are the people that are paying your bills. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Movistar doesn't make brakes, so... They're they're probably okay, right? The 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 equipment sponsor at Movistar is probably a minor part of their actual overall budget, but still, always somewhat surprising. Like that was like when Chris Froome sort of started started knocking it on his YouTube, right? I mean, you've got a bunch of sponsors; it's kind of surprising. But I don't know, fans and us, of course, we appreciate the candor. We always like it when they actually tell us what they think. Shall we move on? Anything else from Swiss? Can we take anything else from this bike race? Uh yeah, Matt Vanderpool's good bike racer. Uh, whoa! Didn't know that whoa, before. Whoa, but whoa, 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 whoa! Yeah. Are you sure? I I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know. I okay. guess he's still pretty young. Jury's still out <laughs> on how things will work out for him. Uh yeah, we didn't. See, you know, we didn't get to see him racing on the road for a little while there. Uh, came back at the Suisse, which had quite a few strong stage hunters. I mean, say what you will about the GC picture, but the the stage hunting picture was was a pretty impressive one. You had Vanderpool 
Alaphilippe, Michael Matthews, uh, Mark Hershey was there as well. So and there, and there were a lot of hilly stages for those riders to sort of ply their trade. Uh, and Vanderpool won two of those stages. Looked really good. Uh, just had a really nice uh, two two stage victories there, and they were uh, convincing wins. Uh, so I think if you're Vanderpool, you got to be pretty pleased with the way things are going ahead of your tour from a stage hunting perspective. Um, yeah, Alaphilippe is or Machu Vanderpool is good at bike racing. So there's that. He he said. I mean, he he was quite clear in the fact that he wants to win a stage of the Tour de France this year, right? That was an actual quote, I believe I saw. I mean, that seems like a reasonable thing for him to say. I'd, I'd also like that, but pretty sure I saw that. Yeah, pretty sure I saw that. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you're a bike racer lining up for a bike race, you want to win. True, true. But like, you know, if I was racing the Tour de France, I probably wouldn't to the press say, yes, I'd like to win a stage of the Tour de France because uh, they would I, just laugh at me. Right? I don't know. There was definitely some guys in the 90s who didn't want to win because that would mean they would be tested afterwards. So not always the case. <laughs> <laughs> also very true. Also very true. Um, brief brief side note on Gino Mater, who who keeps winning things as well. That 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 segue was that those two things were not related. <laughs> I was returning to sort of Swiss. I just realized what that sounded like. <laughs> You caught my attention, I'm only... so, yeah, me so too. Sp- speaking of the '90s, uh, Gino Mater. No, I'm, I, no, I'm not drawing a connection there. I was literally just getting us back on track. <laughs> you, you mean he was born in the '90s? Yeah. Yes, that's what I meant. Born in the '90s. Returning to the Tour de Suisse, uh, and not a discussion of of 1990s doper cyclists. <laughs> Gino Mater keeps winning bike races uh he, he's kind of the revelation of of the last couple months basically I, I saw someone sort of post up like oh is he the new mark hershey and they're not really the same type of rider he's much more of a of a climber type right uh but it is always i like seeing just young riders sort of pop out of nowhere like this right and, and all of a sudden find a really really sort of strong run of form and make a name for themselves uh i'd like to, c- to continue to see him do that because i think I think riders like that are really important. The ones that just sort of like hit out and just go for it and win some and lose some. And they're the ones that keep bike racing interesting. So good on you, Gino Mater, I say. After the final stage, the guy who, you know, chats with the riders after they've won and stuff, the the like on the spot interviews. I I mean, I it's got to be hard to come up with a new question to ask every single rider when you when you interview them and kind of like get some get them to say something interesting but the guy was like, oh, said something about, oh, is this your your way of getting back at Mark Hershey or your way of like leveling up to Mark Hershey? And poor Gino Mater was just like, we're not the same rider. <laughs> exactly. It was really. Yeah. It was like they're really, actually very, they're quite different. <laughs> they I felt really stages. bad for all parties involved watching that interview take place. Yeah. Yeah. Having asked some dumb questions at and interviews before. Uh Oh, it's, it's easy, a, easy it's, to do. Yeah, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes you're not expecting to talk to somebody, and all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, I don't have a question for you," but you stopped, and so now I have to put my microphone in front of you and try to get something out of you. So, how did the legs today? How was it? <laughs> Pulled that one out before. All right, let's move on from the Tour de Suisse and its overlap with the Dauphiné. Okay. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!
We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take a we're gonna take a short diaper change break. <laughs> it's okay. Let's move on to the form of the defending champion, Tade Pogacha. What do we know, Dane? Is he looking pretty good coming into the store? I yeah, as far as we can tell, because he decided not to do the Dauphiné or the Suisse, uh, so he decided to take some time to train, just like Primoz Roglic did. But Tadej Pogacar then raced a mid-sized race, uh, so we did get to see where he was in the form department. That you know, the start list for the Tour of Slovenia was not quite up to the level of the Dauphiné or the Suisse, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't a bunch of continental riders either. It's a it's a pro series race. Um, Diego Lissi, Rafael Micah, Matej Mahoric, Jan Palanch, there were, you know, there's Ilner Zakarin, several big names were at the race, so it wasn't uh it wasn't just Pogacar and, and a bunch of people we've never heard of. Uh and he did win quite handily. He had a pretty dominant stage two and, and held on from there. Uh so I think it's pretty clear that Pogacar's in fine form. Uh I don't think we can immediately assume that he's, you know, in uh in the form of his life, just because of a, of a ride at the tour of Slovenia, but it was nice uh, proof for him. I'm sure he was happy to show that he can race, uh, at a high level right now after kind of being away for, yeah, a not short period of time. It had basically been since, uh, yeah, it had been since Liege best on the edge that he last raced. Of course he won that race, but, uh, that was in, in April. And now he's clearly looking good ahead of the tour. Uh, I think helping to cement himself, as one of the top two favorites, uh, along with Primoz Roglic right now. And we'll see how things go, but uh, he's got to be happy that, that that training appears to have paid off. Maybe I'll hit up Inigo San Milan again and ask how, how the training is going. That's, of course, Pogaccio's coach. We had a chat with him last, was it last fall? It was post-Tour de France. It's like September, I think. Uh, super interesting guy, Inigo. Uh, has been sort of around the block a number of times and is currently coaching a number of top riders, including Tade Pogaccio. Uh, I'll, I'll hit him up, see what he says about how the prep has gone. The last kind of bit of racing news that we want to, or I should say European racing news that we want to touch on here is a, a, a stage win from none other than Mark Cavendish, which it's not his first of the year. He won a stage, two stages of the tour of Turkey. Was it one or two? It's like four. Four? Multiple stages of the tour of Turkey. Won a bunch of stages <laughs> of the tour of Turkey. This is a while ago now. Won a bunch of stages of the Tour of Turkey, and we're all very excited about that because, you know, just having Cav back in the front of sprints is, is I think it's good to see for, for from a bike racing perspective. But the field at Turkey was not super, super strong. Now, he was a sort of last-minute replacement for Sam Bennett at the Belois Belgium Tour and took a stage win over basically a bunch of the best sprinters in the world. Uh, Tim Merlier, who Merlier, Merlier, depends where he's from, how you want to say it. Tim Merlier, uh, kind of one of the revelations of sprinting for this season. And he came in second. Grunewagen was there. Caleb Ewan was there. All the big sprinting names were there and Mark Cavendish won. So that's a big, that's a big difference from winning stages, of the tour of Turkey over a field that was just nowhere near as strong. Which presents a couple questions, not least because we're still somewhat unsure of how Sam Bennett's, I believe it's a knee injury, is going. 
So, if you're Patrick Lefebvre, do you bring Mark Cavendish to the Tour de France? Knowing what we know about Bennett's injury, sounds like he's probably coming back, but it's not sort of 100% sure. And having just seen Mark Cavendish beat some of the best sprinters in the world in a race that they were all trying to win, those sprinters are all going to be at the Tour de France again. Do you bring Mark Cavendish to the Tour? I mean, why not? Explain yourself, Abby. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, sure. I'm a little bit biased. I would love to see Mark Cavendish line up against kind of the top sprinters in the sport again. We haven't seen him at his best for quite some time. And to see him, you know, to see the comeback he's made this year, it's like a really incredible story. Um, it's it's been awesome to watch. So I think having him go to the tour would be really cool. I I don't know. It is kind of a, a toss-up because I would really love to see Sam Bennett at the tour. But if he's injured and you know, can't can't be there, then I yeah, to Cav all the way. Take him to the tour. Yeah, I think it, only if Bennett's not healthy enough to race and, and win because uh, if, if Bennett is there and healthy, I don't think you want the distraction of bringing Cav because journalists will ask about it every single sprint. Uh, and, and that just will not help anything. If Bennett's out there though, I think Lefebvre has an incentive out, even outside of uh, potentially winning in that, uh, the, the, the flooring and window companies that pay the bills will be very pleased to be all over the news because Cav will be all over the news every sprint uh, for everything he does if they take him. So there is that. Uh, all, we, we did see Cav said, according to a, a report, that he his contract being what it is, he doesn't really want to race the tour. So so said a certain report. Uh, I, I don't really know what to make of it. I don't know if he's like what he's trying to leverage. I, I guess he's trying to leverage a new contract out of that. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, basically, I can't believe he's not it. really getting paid very much right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the... you wouldn't have to pay me to race the tour and possibly win stages um, if I'm, you know, at that age and going for a record that I would never otherwise get unless you took me to the tour. I mean, it seems like he should probably want to go to the tour. I can't really believe that he wouldn't go if given the opportunity. No, I think he definitely would. He's He's got to be playing it coy because... Uh, let's be honest, he knows how much he's worth in publicity for De Koenig to go. Uh, what, a, a world tour contract, I think, somewhere starts at 40 grand and people are saying, oh yeah, like he's on a he's on a basic contract. You know he's not getting 40,000 euros. He's going to be on somewhere around 100,000 euros considering what back in 2018 he was on 2 million or something like that with... Um, uh, dimension data so he him just like Froome know how much they're worth just in publicity going to the Tour de France can you imagine how much Cavendish would get paid if if his contract was written sort of like like old reruns of TV shows where like you get paid for every time you're mentioned somewhere <laughs> you residuals uh, I don't know I, I'm trying to remember who Cav's agent is but that would be a pretty amazing way to write a contract <laughs> write a contract just build it off of impressions <laughs> instead of what's the CDM for Cav I don't I don't I, I don't really know I actually really like that idea uh, <laughs> <laughs> if any agents out if any agents out there are listening to this and you decide to jump on this idea I want some sort of credit so can you please right? write write me into the contract 
I mean, you basically at that point, you're just turning him into you're just turning him into a like a media entity, right? Like it's basically how 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 we deal with with advertisers, right? Is how much how much exposure are you going to get? Okay, will you pay us for that exposure? And that's kind of the way that you could structure that contract. I it'd be almost impossible to get like real numbers out of you know how many impressions is a is a Mark Cavendish uh, Tour de France stage win. I mean, you could estimate, but you probably get just as many if if that's how you were paid it really wouldn't incentivize winning bike races it would incentivize him like getting off his bike and throwing it at a UCI commissar <laughs> because that would be more impressions it would incentivize illegal would. Handle, everybody would wear would ride with illegal handlebars every day yes that's, exactly that's like, what, would, well, yeah <laughs> that's what it would incentivize all right so i've changed my mind it's a terrible idea <laughs> it's not going to work Nonetheless, it would be really interesting to try to figure that out. But let's be honest, the tour is just a big publicity showcase for sponsors. Because I like to say, there's some sponsors, some teams what uh, have it written in, or sponsors have it written into the team's contract that if we do not go to the Tour de France, you get this amount in sponsorship. If you do go to the Tour, you get this amount in sponsorship. So why Cav can't do the same as well? Or even have race bonuses, right? I go to the, I'm on... The current contract, if I go to the Tour de France, I get extra X amount for a win, that amount for a third place. You never know. I'd love to see him go, even if Sam is there, because let's be honest, we haven't seen... It, it would be a really interesting lead out. They they seem to work all right at Skelderpreece early on in the year. Plus, we've not seen like a monstrous lead out train since the Seiko days. Like a, 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 a but are they actually going to do that? Because like they still they're going to bring Philippe and are they actually? I, I think they're, they'd be they're too split already. That's the problem. If I'm if I'm Patrick Lefevre, uh, let's assume that Sam Bennett is is somewhat healthy. I don't think you could bring him because one, like Dane said, a lot of distraction. Two, uh, it, there's just they're eight man teams now. There's just not enough. There's not enough room in that team for, for two sprinters, unless, unless Cad's going to literally pull lead out duty the entire month. And I, I'm not sure how good at that he would be. I mean, like you said, they work pretty well at Skelterpros, but uh, he's not very big. <laughs> and so just as sort of like from a physics perspective, he's just doesn't create a whole lot of draft for a guy like Sam Bennett, who's probably what, like five, six inches taller than him. I was I was going to use Skelterpress as an example why you can't take both riders because I, I thought unless I'm, unless I'm remembering yeah. it wrong I thought I thought it went pretty disastrously. They got like first and third. No, they were second and third. I think. Was it or second? <laughs> All right, fair enough then. <laughs> That's not so Which, good. No, and you know Cavendish is at the point now where he is you know so fast in the sprint that we just seen. We know that's not the kind of rider you need to be for a lead out. Um, but just back to that point you'd made there, uh, David, just about uh, you know the, the the win bonuses that Cavendish may or is most likely on, which I believe is a big part of his contract this year, is is bonuses for winning, and perhaps that's what he meant by the contract uh, not being suited to him riding the tour, and that if he goes to the tour, I'm guessing nobody on that team really expected him to be going to the tour this year with Sam Bennett being you know, current green jersey or defending green jersey champion, they probably don't have a clause or a one bonus built into the contract specifically for tour stages, 
Whereas if he goes to, I don't know, Tour of Austria or something that's on at the same time, maybe he he perhaps has huge bonuses he can he can earn at, at in Austria, and maybe that's why he's hinting at at the at the contract issue as well. Mm. Sneaky. As as for the publicity thing, I might be going down completely the wrong track here, but. I'm going to go with sunglasses here. Now, stick with me, right? Cav seems to be the only rider sticking with them Oakley Kato sunglasses <laughs> at the moment. I've all seen the other a lot riders, of them. No, there's not that many. A lot of them, if you do check, there's a lot of riders who've already gone, right, enough of these. I'm not wearing them. <laughs> and you've got to think, right, well, I wonder if he's getting a good bit of money out of Oakley because he is, he's, a, he's a face, he's a name. If he's wearing them, other people are going to be wear, wanting to wear them. And you think, well... They know, they Oakley know they're going to get publicity out of him to the point where many years ago, not that many years ago, it was a toss up between him and Sagan for an Oakley contract and Sagan weren't getting the money he wanted out of Oakley. So they went with Cav instead or so the story goes. So you've got to say, is Cav, Cav is clearly still a massive draw for sponsors if you just go down the sunglasses route. Cav's been wearing the Oakley sunglasses though since... Like the HTC High Road days, he's been he's been in Oakley since like the beginning of his career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, but I'm just saying, like he is he's a he's a face of the brand, and it is clearly just looking at that little bit of his um, publicity. Is he's clearly still a massive draw for sponsors? He's clearly still somebody who it matters for sponsors to see him in their kit using their equipment. So it's like you. You fold that out for uh, uh, the Tour de France, and he is—he's going to draw massive publicity if he gets to the Tour de France. I don't. I, the team have got a way up. Whether it's if getting possible wins with Sam, with, with him not apparently uh, ha- having this injury, and maybe not being on top form, or taking Cav and getting. Second, third, maybe a win, but getting massive publicity. You've got to balance. You've got to work. They've, they've got to work out what's going to be worth it at the end of the day. Is that inter-team rivalry going to be worth the publicity? All right. Too I many cooks all, in the kitchen, you know. hundred percent. I think we're all pretty much in agreement here. That said, I think it'd be. I think it'd be cool to see him there. He's he's four. Was it four wins off Eddie Merckx's record? seriously doubt that he would get four Tour de France stage wins this year. But you never know. You never know. It'd be, it'd, be a, it'd be an interesting narrative for the race. That's for sure. Before we wrap up racing news today, a uh, quick note about Tulsa Tough over the weekend. Uh, some of you might have seen the little, little love letter I wrote to Crit Racing last week and the fact that we're going to be covering sort of the American Crit scene a bit more than we have in the past. Uh, this is something I'm kind of just personally quite passionate about because this is the scene that I grew up racing in, really, uh, including Tulsa Tough a, a number of times. And um, it, was just, it was just fantastic racing over the weekend. And we don't need to sort of go through the results and whatever else because, well, frankly, they're quite pretty easy to, to sum up, which is that Legion of Los Angeles won uh, almost everything. <laughs> they, they think, I think they didn't take the men's 1-2 one day, but they took all of the pro races for the entire weekend. Uh, it was just a really fantastic weekend of racing, and USA Crits has, has been providing a free live stream, which was exceptionally well done. Uh, Frankie Andreu was doing the commentary for that throughout the weekend, and uh, 
we saw a huge amount of interest in Tulsa Tough over the weekend. And I think a lot of that comes down to to Legion itself and the sort of the way that they've been they've been building hype around the American crit scene for quite some time. Uh, and then just showed up and and absolutely dominated. Uh, there's also sort of a bit of a well, there's a bit of a a, a historical aspect, a, a sort of basically as as Justin put on his Instagram account. Um, you know, it's a black owned pro cycling team of which he called it the world's only. I'm actually not completely confident in that. I believe that there's some Conti teams in in Africa that may be black owned, but. Um, Regardless, it is a super high-profile uh, pro cycling team owned by and founded by black riders uh, in a city which almost exactly 100 years ago saw one of the worst race massacres in American history. And for that team to show up and just absolutely dominate, <clears throat> and not just dominate sort of from an athletic perspective, but dominate the conversation, dominate, uh, <laughs> you know, the the the... The coverage that came out of it was really cool to see. So, like I said, we're not going to sort of deep dive into how they won those bike races. Uh, that's not really what we want to do with this crit thing. We're more interested in the scene, the vibe, what's happening around these races, the characters that really matter. So keep an eye out for more on that front. Uh, we've partnered up with the guys at Manual for Speed to put a lot of this together. There's going to be a gallery up today of some awesome photos from the weekend. We've got some video stuff coming this week uh, and we'll be at more races throughout the, throughout the summer. So I want you to love crit racing. Like I love crit racing. And so we're going to, we're going to stick some, stick some additional editorial resource uh, in that direction and try to show everybody out there how just incredibly cool the whole scene is. interlude here after we recorded this week's episode i actually ended up getting justin williams on the phone justin of course the founder and owner of legion of los angeles and we thought we'd just drop that conversation in here today a brief bit of context there's a question at the end of this interview uh, about a a maneuver from the second night of tulsa tough in which basically justin was i think fourth wheel or fifth wheel and he kind of half sat up uh, with about a two corners to go or so. And as a result, his team basically just rode away with the victory. Uh, and he actually ended up sprinting for fourth himself. There's been a bunch of chatter online as to whether this was a purposeful sit-up. Uh, they call it the Saturn sit-up based on, well, when Saturn, uh, this is well, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, used to do something kind of similar when they were super dominant in the crit scene. Well... I put the question to him. So you'll hear that answer later in the interview. Enjoy. Like I said, when I first got on, like that was a pretty incredible display and it kind of felt a bit like a, I don't know, like a, a culmination of what you guys have been building over the last, well, a, a while now, but really over the last like year, year and a half. Right. Yeah. Uh, so like, what, what are your feelings coming out of it? I mean, you, you know, you've had a night to sleep on it. Now you woke up this morning. What are you feeling right now? Yeah, man, just incredibly proud and, and overwhelmed with kind of just, I, I don't know, man. I think that there's not a ton of times in your life you can dream of something and, and then watch it come to fruition in such a massive way in front of such a, in, on such a massive stage, right? Um, and, like, I don't know, I just feel, 
I'm extremely happy and, and proud, man. And I, and happy maybe isn't the right word. Maybe my vocabulary isn't big enough, but <laughs> just like, it's just so, so proud, man. You, you should have saw these guys, like the way they form together, like guys unselfishly riding to put three dudes. Like at the beginning of the week, I, I, I couldn't, in my best prediction, uh, predict it was going to go like this or think it was going to go like this. And, just the selfishness of everybody on the team because, you know, we're just doing everything we can to, like, have understanding and make sure that they're happy um, and take care of their their needs as a human. So to see that reciprocated and to know that if you invest in these guys, um, for these people, uh, you, you'll get the results. Uh, you know, it's it's powerful, man. I struggled my way through cycling, and I've, I've you know, gone through a lot of emotional battles back and forth about if I wanted to stay in the sport and, and if I did stay in the sport, what I needed to change and, and to be able to kind of take the take the reins and just make it happen. Um, it's incredible, man. I come from South Central LA where you know, I, like, there's not a lot of hope to do anything uh, beyond you know, work for some someone um, or be a rapper or, you know, or athlete. And so you know, while this is connected to being an athlete, you know, owning a team, running a team, and, and watching this happen has been amazing. What did it mean specifically that you guys were in Tulsa? Uh, you know, you, you had the Greenwood patches on your sleeves. What did that mean to the whole team and to you? I mean, it it was incredibly powerful to us to, to be able to, you know, dedicate the night one win. Um to Greenwood and, and to Black Excellence. Um, you know, growing up, I didn't have a ton of examples of, um, you know, really amazing business people, you know. And I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had worked a couple of jobs, and I know I didn't want to work for anybody. And being being in, being in Tulsa and understanding um, that there were, you know, there was a thriving community of capable people that were making their way and building something incredibly beautiful. Um, to come back with that same, you know, spirit in our hearts to, to do to do something like that in cycling, um, man, it was it was incredible to, to to pay to pay. I don't know if the word is tribute or homage, but like to just really, you know, go put our heart into something and to to shine a light on. You know this, this, you know this incredible tragedy, but at the same time, the, this story of uh, of black excellence and, and success. I want to talk a little bit about the the business side. I mean, it, it, you've built this thing now, right? And and not only is did, did you have sort of athletic excellence this weekend, but it's sort of changing the sport. I mean, I'm watching from the outside, and I'm watching like our own analytics and things like that. And, and all of a sudden this surge in interest in a race that last year, I, I don't think I could have gotten anybody interested in. And you guys are, are, you're behind that. Like you're a big, big part of that. And I'm also watching you sort of build this backroom staff that makes it seem to me like you've got pretty big ambitions. And I, you've talked a little bit about this before, but like, does this still feel like a step for you? Is this just the beginning, or how do you how do you view where you are right now and sort of the the you know the span of where you want to take Legion and and where you've already been? No, this is absolutely just the beginning, and and while it's 
amazing to, to soak it all in, man, like, which is a lot of the times my problem. You know, Corey always, my, my brother always tells me, man, like, you're always, like, so far ahead of everything and everyone. Like, you got to slow down and let us catch up because where your ambition and where you're, you know, you're, where you're at, like, we're, we're always playing catch up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, no, this, for me, it's just the beginning. Like, you know, Legion is one team and it was just the model, the concept of if you put something together right and you treat the athletes like they should be treated, um, they're going to perform on another level. But not only that, they're going to be more than happy to invest in the things outside of the, the race, right? You're going to be happy to invest in going on a Greenwood tour and, and learning about the history of the of the area. They're going to be happy to do school visits. They're going to be happy to do Q&A because they know that they're taken care of. Um, and as long as they're doing what they need to be doing, um, you know, they, they, they have security in, in being a part of our, our team and our program in one capacity or another. You know, it's, it's more than everybody's not going to be the best bike racers. And as we continue to develop better bike racers, um, as we continue to develop better bike racers, like those, the goal should be to leave the jersey better than you, you found it. Uh, and I think that we have a lot of buy-in uh, from the people on our team for that, right? Like that's where they're headed. So, I mean, the business side of it is to, to grow the, the right people on the team and, and basically develop them to be leaders so that when we expand, we can put them in positions to continue to be successful uh, during and after their careers. Where are you in a couple of years? I mean, you just said that you just said that Corey always thinks that you're you're you know your head's a couple of years ahead of wherever you're standing right now. So where where's Legion going? Yeah, I mean, like, what's the goal? Uh, without without <laughs> without saying too much, it's, it's to create you know multiple uh, sustainable platforms within the sport of cycling and to up. It's you know it's kind of always been the same to uplift the, the sport and redefine what it looks like to be successful in American bike racing, specifically in American criterium racing, and to develop that platform to be something that um, draws massive, massive crowds and, and become something that it has this incredible value to it and making sure that as that value grows, that the people that are participating in, in it, the athletes, um, from the beginning, get a cut of that. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's something that we see in all sport, like athletes fighting for for a fair share of the profits. Like we want to build that into what we're doing from the absolute beginning. Um, and so we'll have those tough conversations and we'll ruffle some feathers. But you know, in three years, we have to be in a place where, again, like athletes are being taken care of. These these, these people that are dedicating their lives to this sport and bringing this value as far as marketing and entertainment and. Um, and connection to, to a community are getting paid accordingly. What was the what was the best moment of your weekend this past weekend? You had a lot of good ones, <laughs> quite a few good ones. What was what was the best moment? Um, there's two. The best moment the the first one was watching Skyler and Kendall's energy like bounce off of each other as they met <laughs> after the finish of night one. Like literally, they both like screamed at the same time, and you could see this like I could see this like cloud of energy like bounce and that was like incredible bringing these girls on that you know I've admired and I grew up with Kendall and I've known Skylar since she was a kid and for them to for Kendall to be a tour California winner for uh, Skylar to be one of the most talented Americans coming off of a the best team in the world for women 
uh, and come into our program and and for them to be able to mesh and melt together um and you know and, and to win like that you know with the help of you know julian our mexican rider who was also on major motion kendall was on major motion growing up which is our our junior team and julian the, the mexican rider who guest rode for us was also on major motion so to see that all coming together and to see to have that to have the girls kind of like setting the standards for like what the guys need to do man it's that was an incredible moment. Um, and I think the second one was probably the last day watching Tyler Williams. Um, I'll give you three because <laughs> I have to, the, the last day watching Tyler Williams, um, who's, you know, has been one of the most talented American cyclists like for a while now. And, you know, just to kind of look through his career and understand his, his pain of these near misses and these, 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 this frustration that he's had because he's, he knows he's always known he was good enough. And, you know, being in Europe and, and not winning anything for a long time and coming back, being a part of this incredible team, riding the front all day, riding the front all week, take, really taking control of like, no one here is better than me. No one here is stronger than me. I'm going to like ride you guys into the ground. Um, and then for him to like pull off the win on Sunday, and then watch the emotion pour out of him like he couldn't help it. He's, like, crying in my arms. And, like, you know, we've had these, like, such deep conversations. Like, Tyler's so invested. Like, Tyler's invested for 10 years. You know what I mean? And to, and to have someone of his ability come in and just buy in and say, yep, this is what we're doing. I believe you lead me. Like, this is what I, I believe in where you say we're going. And to watch him get a win and to watch that emotion pour out of him, man, like it was it was everything for me, man. And then the last thing was watching my little brother, Corey, um, step up and, and ride like a ride like I know he's capable of riding. And you know yeah, man, that was that was massive. I thought two thousand and twenty would have been a massive year for him and we didn't have that. So to watch him come back at the the first race of the the first second race of the year but the one of the biggest races on the calendar until like ride so dominant at the front and, and take command of his troops and really like live up to the hype um that was one of the best moments of my like career like let alone like this weekend do you still get nervous that crit starts i was, I was sitting there watching the live stream watching you line up i was like i wonder if he gets nervous do you get nervous <laughs> I I do get nervous. I think that if you're not nervous, you're not in love with it, man. And like, you should be nervous. I I, I love that when I start feeling that anxiety, anxiety and that tingling, and you know the nerve starts coming, man. Like I think my one of my best attributes to being a bike racer is being able to channel that energy into the bike. And so like I, I you know I calm it down by listening to like really mellow music, before, you know, in the hours before and then. As we get closer and closer, you know me, like I'm pretty energetic and I am all over the place and I'm like kind of a spaz and bouncing off each other. But, you know, a bike race is the only moment in my life. A bike race, when the like race is about to start, when it started on the first lap, it's, it's one of the few moments I have in life where I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm thinking about one thing and that's going fast. So I, I love feeling the that nerve, I love feeling that anxiety. I love feeling that that pressure because I can channel it into forward energy, and you know I think the results speak for themselves. 
What's on that uh, Justin Williams mellow pre-race playlist then? Yeah, dude, give, dude. Us, give us give us a tune or two. <laughs> it's like um, it's like Billie Eilish, funny enough, Coldplay, um, uh, some country music. I've been listening to. Um, can't remember the band. Hold on. I feel like we need to share this playlist with the world. I feel like. Oh, it's called Midland. Some Midland. Oh, yeah. So some Midland, some some Coldplay, some Billy. Yeah, just like really mellow stuff, man. And that that's right before I turn on like the J. Cole, the Drake, the the Kendrick, the real, real <laughs> stay out of my way. <laughs> Speaking of staying out of my way, this is the last question for you. I got to ask. People keep tweeting me about this. Uh-huh. Second night. Second night. Was that, was that, was that little, what, what was that? Was that little, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Was that yeah, little sit up? Was that? I'll run what, you what do was it. That? I'll, I'll run you do it. These, these fucking guys, dude, are too strong. So like they came into two laps to go as if it was one. I promise you, they came into two laps to go as if it was one lap to go. And there's just, it's so funny to listen to them hype each other up when they're riding in the front. Dude, it's incredible. I've never seen this before, man. Like, they were hyping each other up as they're riding in the front and, like, basically telling each other, like, you guys are the fucking best. You guys are badass. Like, it, it's really cool. So they just, like, they just stoked the fire too fast, man, and they were going too fast two laps to go. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I'm like, I'm in it, dude. Like, I'm feeling it. And we come through one, and Alec takes this amazing chop. We, we're, <laughs> I keep trying to tell them I live in the shit. Like, if people are coming up next to me, that's better for me. Like, I love that kind of riding. Um, but they just want to go as fast as they can. And like, you know, they, they want to prove everybody wrong. And, and they're starting to feel that, like, they're starting to feel that kind of, uh, that envy that comes with being online and being, and then we've been getting, so, you know, they're, they're fired up. And so we went into the last lap and we were going fucking too fast, dude. And I was like, and, and so I, I got a little bit of a gap. I didn't think it was going to snap that hard up the hill. So we go through turn one and fine. We float to turn two, fine. We start to, like, ramp it into turn uh, three. And I'm like, okay, I'm all right. My fucking legs are a little bit, you know, whatever. But, like, we'll see. And then we, we come out of the corner to head up the hill. And I, like, try I settle in. And when I settle in, fucking Ty, like, smacks it. And when he smacks it, dude, I, like, get, like, a bike length on me. And I'm like, oh, shit, I got a bike length. I'm like, I'm riding as hard as I can. Like, I, I have, like, enough legs. To, I have, like, a little bit of legs to sprint. But I'm literally riding as hard as I can, and I'm not closing the gap. So I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to, like, ride back to the wheel and be fucked and, and be blown up. Or I'm going to sit up and, like, hopefully I get, like, a two. Dude, I only needed, like, three seconds to kind of, like, not push over that climb, and then I was going to be fine. And I just made the decision right. in my head. Like, in, the, in that split second, I went, if I open the gap now, I'll get a second to recover, and I'll still have legs and maybe be able to beat anyone that's going to challenge. And they get the gap, and they're going, like, Mach 10. And I knew Tyler was about to exchange. So I was like, Tyler's going to exchange, and it's going it's to be, be Mach 10. So I'm going to let the gap open because if I don't, I'm going to blow and be useless on the wheel. Um, and, they're gonna, and my team is going to get the gap with, you know, three of the fastest guys in the race. So I was like, it'd be incredible if anyone could chase them. But if they can chase them, I'll be on the wheel, and I'll be able to navigate from there. So yeah, it was it was a little bit of that was just all experience, man. That was all being in this in, in Criterium racing for such a long time and understanding like my body and I, I only had another 
I probably had another three seconds of that effort, and then my race would have been over right there. So I had to, right. I had to let the wheel go. But in understanding myself, my team, and the situation, uh, I knew that I could float over that top section. We had been doing it the whole time. And then when um, Danny Estevez actually came around me first, and then I tried to slide in on his wheel because I didn't think he was going to have a teammate behind him. But Michael Hernandez was behind him, so I, we kind of bumped a little bit. But, you know, it's racing. It was no big deal. Uh, I let him through, and then he went in front of Danny. But at that point, it was fucking too late. Uh, and Danny, and then, and then uh, Danny didn't jump into the corner. So I basically just sat next to him on the inside into the corner that boxed him out. So he has to now wait until uh, until he gets behind me, right in the draft, because you can't go to the right. Uh, and then I just opened up my sprint into Hernandez's draft, and that was and that was it, man. It was all experience. You know what I, I love. I just love that when I asked that question, I could just hear the excitement in your voice as you talk through it. Like, it just, like, you get so stoked talking through it. I just absolutely love it. Oh, All right, well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take your word for it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a purposeful sit-up. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, like, there was there was intent to it. No, for sure there was intent to it, but I, right. I, it was all based off of necessity. <laughs> it was based off of me getting blown out. Um, again, like, we're still, we're still working on that lead-out, so, like, when they lead it out for oh, yeah. me, it's it's going to be different than when they lead it out for Corey. And when they lead it out for Corey, that's what it's going to look like. And I'm just not right. there yet. Usually when we get to Tulsa, we probably have like 25 to 30 races in our legs. And this year we had like maybe eight. So I'm just right. missing a little bit of that top end. And, and that's all that was. Like I just needed that second to compose myself and then float over the top it gave me like and it was probably like eight seconds recovery and like as a sprinter that's all you need to give another like go all right i'll i'll inform the people of twitter set the yeah. straight do it <laughs> do it <laughs> all right man that's uh i'll let you get back to the party here i really appreciate you making some time and uh yeah we'll catch up with you after the next couple races all right sounds good dude side note what Legion is doing is crazy impressive. Uh, I, I was I was messaging with a sort of a long time guy who's been in this in the crit scene for a long time, an announcer, um, and he said something to the effect of Legion has 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 made crit, turn crits from sort of like the weird cousin to like a real sibling uh, of of other types of racing, and, and I and I totally agree. They've 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 made crit racing cool again and we can see it you know i I sometimes talk about sort of like the analytics that we get uh sort of you know the back end of the site and things like that and we can see it it's obvious there there's tons of people watching that live stream that we posted on the site there has just been a massive amount of interest on social media uh there's a there's one of the biggest stories the entire weekend was the one that we put up about uh about legion winning a, a number of these races that wouldn't have happened even a year ago and I think a lot of it comes down to to that team and, and what they're building. I also think it's particularly interesting from a sort of business of cycling perspective, right? This is a team, yes, they have big sponsors. They've got Zwift and Rafa and Specialized and a bunch of others. But the team name is Legion. And that team name will remain as that team grows. Uh, they have big ambitions. They've, they've recently hired a bunch of people in the back end. It's clear to me from the outside that they're putting together sort of a backroom team that can take this team to, to high places, but it's not, it's not sponsored by 
a big brand, right? It's not that team name is not going to change. And so, you know, like we've talked to Jonathan Vodders about this. We've talked to all sorts of people that in, in professional cycling about this, the need to sort of have a consistent brand around a team that people can get behind, that they can remain fans of, that doesn't change names every couple of years or, or even more frequently than that. And Legion is the first team I've seen in a long time that is sort of actually following that path. So yeah, for more on that, we, I actually did a, I did a podcast with Justin, uh, founder of Legion and, and a couple other folks. Um, was it last, it was around, around this time last year. If you go look it up, it was one of the Rafa roadmap episodes. And some of the things that were said in that, I think given what we've seen since then in the year since then are, are even more interesting now because a lot of the stuff that Justin in particular was saying has essentially come to fruition in the last year. Uh, I actually just went back and re-listened to that episode recently. And, and yeah, a lot of the things that he sort of predicted have, have come true. So just really interesting, I think. Keep an eye on on them. Keep an eye on Legion. Keep an eye on the U.S. crit scene. And we'll try to bring you just more of that, basically. We're going to try to try to tell those stories as best we possibly can. All right. Before we get into today's Nerd Nugget, Calfee has officially entered the mountain bike world with their new Cephal Hardtail. The Cephal is an ultra-adjustable hardtail that offers 8 degrees of head tube adjustment. 8 degrees! With the quick... That's that's basically like... That's like full road bike to full downhill bike. (laughs) Basically. With the Quick Tune System, or QTS, the eccentric BB allows the rider to change the effective seat tube angle to match the head tube correctly, not to mention single speed and proper mullet options. The chain stays and seat stays are solid carbon that provide incredible deflection and comfort without fear of failure. Solid carbon. Although the geometry can be adjusted to the rider's preferences and discipline, Calfi has taken out much of the guesswork with their recommended geometry configurations from Enduro, Trail, and Monster Gravel. Like all their products, the Cephal is handmade in La Selva Beach, California. There are lots of talking points on this new frame, so check out their website calfeedesign.com c-a-l-f-e-e design.com for more details nerd alert nerd alert nerd alert nerd alert today nerd alert in nerd alert we're talking about two things uh the first and foremost as i mentioned earlier in the show a psa from james uh who does not want you to explode your bicycle rims james what what what, how do we how do you explode rims i Explain. Explain. So uh, I was looking through a while ago last week, I guess, uh, at some of the bikes that uh, Dan Cavallari had had taken pictures of for us at Unbound Gravel. And one in particular caught my eye, the uh, Pinarello Gravel of Jess Serra, uh, who coincidentally runs the Joje Bar uh, Energy Bar Company. Um, But they are pretty yummy. Um, But one little detail on her bike that I noted was was that either she or her mechanic or whoever uh, was using some silicone glue to try and seal up the uh, seal up some air leakage around the valve stem in her NV tubeless rim. And uh, while I can kind of applaud the effort that someone made to try and make that, make that area airtight um, it did kind of stand out to me because that's something that you really, really don't want to do because if you have air leaking out from around the valve stem in your rim, that indicates 
very clearly that you have air leaking from the tire chamber into your like in, inside the the inside of the rim cavity, and you need that air to go somewhere because if it doesn't, like the inside of your rim cavity is not meant to be pressurized. Um, and I actually reached out to Envy about this. They 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 in fact make a specific tubeless valve nut with like kind of like a with like little extra channels machined into it so that air can more readily escape because if you know envy says that there is a risk of your carbon rim delaminating if the inside of it gets pressurized because you have a leak in your in your uh tubeless valve tape or something like that uh and you know when they say delaminate i read that as break and or explode because if you have a lot of pressure inside your carbon rim that could end poorly so Yes, this is just the public public service announcement. If you have air leaking out of your tubeless wheel around your valve stem, the solution is to not seal up that spot. The solution is to figure out why you have air leaking into your rim from your tire because that whole thing could end poorly. Silicon glue is my is my go-to for plumbing, but I, probably not the best idea for uh for your bicycle tires. No, probably bicycle not. rims. Probably not. Yeah. Isn't isn't that James that the if you if you look closely on some rims you can find a tiny pinhole on the on the on the carbon rims isn't that for that very purpose to let out air that has I mean that might be a supplemental person purpose I mean that those little holes are usually there more more as drain holes because um, like water if you go if you ride in the wet water can definitely get in around the valve stem or around like the spoke holes stuff like that I mean it might even just be like a tiny amount. Um, but if water gets in there, then it doesn't really have a good way to get out. But, uh, if you put a little hole in the side of the rim at a strategic location, uh, then that water basically just gets, you know, just gets flung out as you're riding. So that's usually what those holes are for. They're not really meant to be there for drain holes. Um, so yeah, I mean, like looking, I haven't looked at Jess's bike, uh, I mean, this Envy rim, I would think, would have a drain hole in there somewhere. So, I mean, if it's leaking around the valve stem, then it surely would have been leaking out around the, the drain hole as well. Um, but either way, I mean, that, that rim needed to be retaped. And according to Envy, that rim did end up getting retaped before the race. There you go. Don't seal up your rims if you like them to stay in one piece. All right. Moving on to our second topic here. Today... We're getting into a little controversy about handlebars and arrow positions and the UCI weighing in once again on what, well, basically what type of equipment can and cannot be used. And in this case, we're talking about Willem van Schip and his use of some crazy Spico ABB handlebars. Now, van Schip was involved in the development of these handlebars and then went to try to use them at the Belwaz Belgium tour last week and got disqualified, got pulled out of the race straight out, uh, was told in the morning by a UCI commissaire that the bars were okay. And then that evening was told that actually, no, they're not okay. And you are disqualified. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to explain why we've talked to the UCI about this. We're going to try to figure out exactly what's going on. So, Ronan, what's the, what's the backstory here? You're the one that's been digging into this. Uh, well, I think it was James, actually, who initially reported on these bars way back last November, was it? 
James, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we need a little bit of an explainer as to what these bars are, first of all. Um, so we've talked a lot about sort of like the puppy paws position where riders kind of rest their forearms on the bar tops uh, to kind of replicate a TT position. And these Spico bars, they are sort of like a really weird variant of drop bars where um, it's an integrated setup where it's it's all one piece carbon fiber with the handlebar and the stem. The stem portion is really short. It's like 70 millimeters. The The width of the bar is super, super narrow. I mean, exactly how narrow is kind of up to you because they're all custom made. Um, but there's an incredibly long bit of bar that it basically reaches forward from the end of the tops to the hoods. And essentially what that does is it allows you to keep your hands on the hoods. The hood position supposedly is the same as a regular bar, um, but it allows you to now rest a lot of your forearm on on the handlebar. Um, so in this way, Spico's intent was to sort of kind of get around UCI rules, I think, sort of, or I guess more more appropriately. I, mean, it, it, I think what their intent was was to replicate that puppy paws position, but with a greater level of control since your hands were still actually on the bars and your forearms were on the bars and like it was more stable, it was more comfortable, you could maintain that position longer, so on and so forth. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I wrote about these things a while ago and I don't think this whole development with the UCI is gonna be a big surprise because I think pretty much anyone looking at that would say like, well, that that's a TT bar, like it lets you maintain a TT position. So, and you know, I guess as expected now, the UCI has banned them, so now, Moving on to Ronan. Yeah, and um, I guess, you know, as we had just sort of mentioned numerous times on the podcast here was that we thought since the new rules came in on the uh, puppy paws position or the invisible air bars position back in March of this year that, uh, you know, wh while we had looked at some other very narrow bars and sort of questioned could they be banned by the UCA or something, the ABB bars sort of struck us as yeah, these are these are going to be banned immediately because they're in direct uh, con contravening the the regulation on draping your forearms on on the handlebars, which is what uh, Van Skip fell foul of in stage three of the the Belgium Tour just last week, and he then you know ended up getting disqualified from the race. Now, since then, we've seen a bit of a a war of words unfold, and that the team came out first of all immediately after the disqualification was announced and said that they had been given the green light by the UCI commissaire on on the race uh, to use these bars in advance of stage three. Um, and then we had the UCI release a statement over the weekend saying, well, actually, in fact, uh, we looked at these bars earlier this year. We informed the manufacturer, Spico, who has, you know, the, the writer in question here has worked closely with Spico in designing these bars. And uh, the UCI are saying, well, we informed Spico that uh, these these bars are in their current design are outside of the the UCI regulations and are not for, permitted for use in uh, in UCI regulated events. And further to that, they actually used a picture of Jan Willem Van Skip using the Spico bars in question for um, a presentation that the UCI made to all UCI road teams. Uh, back in March as a sort of explainer for how the new rule on the forearm position was to be interpreted. So, you know, it, although we didn't get a roll call of who was at that meeting or anything, the UCI did say all road teams. So we have to assume that the beat cycling who are, you know, Van, Jan William Van Skip's team were either present at or given the presentation to, to mull over and they would have Forward seen their... At least. 
or were invited at least, yeah. And and if they did get a, a copy of the presentation, would have seen their writer in the presentation with with the you know clearly uh, depicted as a position that is not permitted. Um, so I, I have to say I'm 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 with the UCI on this one. I think uh, I think plenty of uh, warning was was given in advance. Everybody understands the spirit of the new regulation outlining or outlawing the puppy pops puppy pops position. I do think these bars were you know in design for a long time before this new regulation was brought in this year uh, and perhaps Biko were working towards a safer variation of that puppy pause position but you know unfortunately for them now it is pretty for 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 once it is actually pretty clear here the the rule clearly states your forearms may not rest on the handlebars or some variation of the, of that wording uh and and that is very clearly what Jan Willem van Skip was doing in in the Balwas Belgium tour last week Right. I mean, I think it's safe to say that when the official UCI presentation on this specific rule includes a picture of said rider on said bike with said handlebars with a big red X through the whole thing is pretty clear indication <laughs> that that is not allowed. Uh, yeah, we should say that the the updated rules here, basically what they what they do is they define what they define the touch points on the bicycle, right? So they say that you can, you can, you know, you touch your hands to the handlebars and your butt to the saddle and your feet to the pedals and things like that. And anything outside of that is not allowed. So that includes forearms on a handlebar. Now, anybody who listens to this podcast on a regular basis knows that we, we give the UCI a fair amount of stick. And we, particularly in the last couple of years, have given the UCI a fair amount of stick over... Uh, basically like kind of poorly written rules and then those poorly written rules are often enforced randomly sort of just like random commissars decide that oh suddenly this thing matters and we yeah like i said we've given the uci a fair amount of stick for this over the past i think that the consensus in this group here after going back and forth and and speaking with the uci looking at what beat and and what willem uh, jan willem are saying I think we all pretty much fall on the UCI side on this side and this one, I, I, that, which is unusual for us, but it, it just seems to be the reality, right? I mean, there was, there's enough, there was enough uh, clarity around the situation that I think any reasonable person would have been like, you can't run those bars. Well, I, I can right? see how they could be a little bit confused and or irritated if they got an okay from a, a commissaire on site the day the day previous. But ultimately, I mean, the commissaries are only supposed to be basically local representatives, you know, enforcing UCI rules. Um, I mean, if if they make a mistake in enforcing those rules, that's that's one thing. But the rules still are the rules. I mean, they are they are written. They are they are available to to, to look at and, and check with and that sort of thing. So, I mean, the commissary can say one thing, but ultimately the UCI still has ultimate authority to to make that ruling. So, I mean, th that commissary very well could have made a mistake the day before, but I mean, that's too bad. I mean, beat cycling, I guess, unfortunately still needed to be aware of the rules themselves as well. I can, I, mean, <laughs> I, I kind of wonder, you know, why did they go for clarification the morning of, of that stage? Uh, you know, it, Jan Willem van Skip is, you know, he is, is well known for his attention to the aerodynamics in, in cycling and, I'm sure he was well aware of of the forearm ruling and 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 the 
the sort of the intended use for these bars. There's no getting away from the fact that the intention is to rest your forearms on this extended horizontal section of, of the handlebar. There's a bottle holder. Bottle holder. <laughs> but you know, you don't you don't have writers going to commissaires in the morning and asking, uh, you know, is a frame okay because it's got a top tube on it that you could sit on when taking the super tuck position. <laughs> you know, it's we all know there's a top tube there. You can sit on it, but it's against the rules, so you don't. And it's the same with these bars. The bars, it's it. You know, it was initially suggested that the bars were okay. It was the use of them that was the problem. But the UCI have very clearly sort of. Uh, and, the, and their statement said that, well, you know, we inform speak with these, these bars are not permitted in, in, in races. And, and, and it's because the intention is to use them in, in the way that Vanskip very clearly did. And so, yeah, it just seems, you know, slightly odd to me that uh, a writer and a team who have taken so much attention to detail when it comes to, you know, narrow, Jan Willem Vanskip was one of the first writers to ride these super narrow handlebars. Uh, and as you know, um, pays a lot of attention to the aerodynamic aspect of, of his setup and, and his racing. So it seems odd that they weren't fully aware of, of the regulations before stage three and, and you know, then went to the commissaire for, uh, for approval that, that morning. But but still, if if a commissaire on site gives you approval, doesn't that that's a bit of an extenuating circumstance here, right? Like, yes, maybe they effectively knew that they were illegal, but they did get approval. T- to me, that the one thing that I don't really like about this is the fact that he was chucked out of the race, right? I mean, it seems like a pretty easy solution. He, he's already done it. Uh, it's not you know the safety issue or whatever the, the, the issue that the UCI has with this, it didn't have any negative impact, right? It didn't cause a crash or anything like that. Fine him, tell him to put new handlebars on for tomorrow and let him start again. That, that's, that I think is a little bit, that one doesn't sit well with me when it was fundamentally, I mean, that, that's an internal communication error, right? With, with, between the commissar and sort of the, the, the UCI headquarters and, and the technical coordinators and things like that at the UCI. Yes, maybe Beat Cycling and Jan Willem were kind of taking advantage of that of that little communication error, but it still happened. He still got approval, and I think that there was probably a better way to handle the outcome of this than what initially happened, which was which was a straight disqualification. Right. So, in other words, we are all in agreement for the most part with the UCI, but we're still finding a way to rip on the UCI a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Also, side note, side note. These super narrow handlebars, like the you know thirty-two mil or whatever uh, he's been running throughout much of the season, I feel like if I rode up next to somebody on those in a peloton, I would immediately try to put them behind me because because they look slightly terrifying and extremely sketchy. And if I was just you know the pro peloton, it's a bunch of colleagues, right? You're, you're talking about a bunch of people that are they work together. They are they are this is their profession. If I saw you riding sketchy, super narrow handlebars, I would want you nowhere near me. And I would be actually a little bit annoyed that you did that, putting essentially my, my safety at risk. I, I, this sort of a totally separate topic, but I don't know. There was, like, there was a very strong reaction from some riders in, in the Peloton on, on Twitter, just, you know, uh, Basically calling out the UCA before he got before Jan Willem Van Skip was disqualified, there was a strong reaction on Twitter from writers calling out the UCA on on how can you permit handlebars like this to be used in the Peloton. 
you know, it's it's clearly unsafe in 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 their opinion, I guess. I haven't tried them myself, so I can't actually comment. Uh, I mean, they have to be. They have. To, have you ever tried to do any like sort of technical coordinating or cornering with your hands, basically on the middle of your tops? Right. I mean, that's how wide. That's how wide his bars are. It, it's. There's no way that it's it's as safe as a as a full sized handlebar. I, I do have a set of thirty two centimeter handlebars here. I'm waiting for. Despite you know we mentioned earlier, I have fourteen bikes here. I don't have a bike that I can get a thirty two centimeter handlebar onto. Uh, <laughs> so I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a, a road bike uh, with a with a normal stem that I can try out these thirty two centimeter handlebars on. But uh, and you know again, not not trying to. Um, again, bash on the UCA or anything, but I, I, I do feel that there is, you know, wh- when they have moved to ban the puppy pause position, you know, on the grounds of safety, uh, and the way they've done that is sort of, you know, taking a mallet to crack a nut, uh, and they've said you can't rest your forearms on the handlebars, uh, which is what the riders were doing, so it means, means that they can't now do the puppy pause position anymore, but. It's just so vague again that it is open to interpretation, and and that's probably what Jan Willem van Skip is arguing last week is that yes, my forearms are on the handlebars, but I still could grab my brakes. And the other question is, well, how much of your forearm has to be on the handlebars before you are deemed disqualifiable, if that's a word? But you know, th- there is riders riding in in what's called the arrow hoods position, where your hands are entirely on the brake levers, but a small portion of your forearm is on the handlebars also and you know are we going to see riders getting disqualified for that even though that you know it's an a, a position that all riders at some point have adopted so you know it's it's and i suppose the flip side of that is that you have some sort of regulations that are you know uh, have exact millimeter lengths of um handlebars that you can have and how much forearm can be shown and we probably don't want that either because it's sort of overly descriptive but yeah i do think it's uh it's 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 another interpretation of of the 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 rules uh, uh, that's going to lead to so riders continually trying to find loopholes as we've seen so many times before and 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 then the UCI sort of comes out of it again with with egg in their face because you know as as we heard last week oh well the commissaire gave us the green light to use them and then a few hours after the stage the UCI headquarters are saying well no you can't use them you're banned and regardless of whether that's right or wrong it, it does look bad for the UCI again that that they're effectively contradicting each other yeah I just come back to if, if you've got if you have fellow pros complaining about your handlebars because they think that they're unsafe it, it's a it's a matter of respect for the people that in the peloton with you to just not run them well so, and you know we talk a lot about regulations and and you know, controversial topics and stuff like that. And I, I feel like this is another one of those things where it, like, it just doesn't pass the sniff test, right? Like it's, it, regardless of what the actual specifics are, like, you know, millimeter measurements and that sort of thing, it seems intuitive to us, at least, that these bars would be in violation of that UCI rule of not, not being able to rest your forearms on the handlebar. Um, and I, I don't know, like it, I, I mean, I'm still curious to try them. I've just been so intrigued <laughs> oh, by them. I really but, want to say it. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, Ronan, I think you'd probably be a better candidate for these than, than me. So I'm just gonna, I'll just put that out there. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it does seem pretty obvious that these are not going to be legalized ever. Yeah. I mean, to return to, to Ronan's point, if you have to ask, you probably already know the answer, Right. The fact that they had to ask means they they really already knew the answer. But when well, was the last time we, 
you know spent this much time on a podcast talking about the beach cycling team and yeah and willem van skip true true yeah big big boon for the sponsors <laughs> all right everybody i think it's time to wrap up for today let us know what you think of those crazy handlebars in the comment section on the site where we post the podcast or you know hit us up on twitter uh at cycling tips and we'll maybe respond our social media editor will will see it and probably send it to us we'll figure <laughs> so, it out so that's a good way to do it mikey will do that uh and if you're a velo club member which all of you should be every single one of you out there should be a velo club member by now hit us up on slack we'll chat about these crazy handlebars all right that is it for today thanks everybody we'll be back it's tour week next week let's do it bye-bye bye-bye Bye-bye.